It's a reading from John 1, verse 1 through 18. You can find this on page 1646 of the Red Bibles or follow on the screen. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. The, world, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is the, in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Morning, everybody. Good to be with you. Thank you um, for your prayers for Corinne this week, who's been in the hospital. Um, it's been a bit of a crazy week for us. She's um, being assessed again today, hopefully coming home this afternoon, but um, um, we'll find out later. Uh, we're into the season of Advent, uh, which is exciting, and... Uh, the word Advent means coming or appearing. Uh, the season of Advent is all about um, looking back to Jesus' first coming at Christmas, a baby born at Bethlehem, and also looking forward to Jesus' second coming when he comes to restore all things and renew uh, the creation. So Advent is a season of reflecting on God's promises, rejoicing in the promises fulfilled, uh, looking forward in anticipation to the uh, the completion and full fulfillment of all his promises. Um, 
Today we're going to do things a, a little bit differently. I haven't had a great deal of time to prepare, and so I'm going to give a brief introduction to Advent, and then uh, we're going to watch a Bible Project video on uh, that passage from the beginning of John's Gospel. Then we're going to watch another video by Glenn Scrivener, um, who uh, addresses one of the big themes that come out of the first few verses, and then we'll have a bit of time to reflect and think about how we might respond. Um, traditionally, Advent was a time of fasting. Uh, it was a time to give attention to the coming of the Lord and kind of preparing ourselves to celebrate at Christmas uh, and also kind of repenting and preparing ourselves, making, uh, uh, giving some time to uh, being ready for the Lord to come again. I guess we're familiar with Lent as a period of fasting, 40 days leading up to, to Easter. But Advent itself was traditionally a period of fasting, four weeks of fasting, followed by uh, 12 days of feasting uh, at Christmas. Now in Australia, it's a bit different, isn't it? It's kind of four weeks of parties, and then you get to Christmas, and you're so exhausted and stuffed, you don't even want to eat another mince pie. So here's a novel suggestion for us um, that we might try injecting a bit of fasting into our Advents. I'm not suggesting you boycott all the Christmas parties you've been invited to, um, but maybe try fasting from food one day a week for each of the four weeks of Advent. Or if that seems a bit extreme, you could try fasting one meal uh, a week. Uh, we don't practice fasting much, we don't talk about it much, and we probably should talk about the kind of what and why of fasting, but uh, having not done that, why not give it a go? It's a, a spiritual practice that Christians have engaged in for centuries. Uh, personally, uh, I haven't done much recently, but in the past, particularly in my time at university, I uh, found it very beneficial. So I'm planning on fasting one day a week uh, through Advent. It's helpful to have a, a kind of a purpose and a focus for your fast. So why not uh, give time to, uh, to pray for a greater knowledge of the Lord? Pray for yourself over this period leading up to Christmas to grow uh, in your knowledge of Jesus. Uh, pray for us as a church family that we'd be deepening our knowledge of the Lord. Uh, pray for others to come to know the Lord themselves. Uh, we've got a number of outreach events, and uh, it'd be great to be praying uh, deliberately in, for them. So you can use the time when you would have been eating or preparing food uh, to fast, and if you are fasting from food, uh, every time you feel a pang of hunger, uh, you can take that as an opportunity to refocus your attention on the Lord. Seek, seek him, the bread of life. And another Advent tradition is uh, Advent candles, and um, there are a number of different ways that that's been done over the years. Uh, the most common is to have four candles with a fifth in the middle. Um, the, the four candles represent uh, hope and love and joy and peace. And the candle in the center represents Christ, the light of the world. So I'm going to light our first Advent candle. In the future, we might do it when the kids are here. Uh, they'll enjoy it as long as they don't get burnt. So uh, we light candles to remember that Jesus came as a light into our world. As I said, the first candle symbolizes hope. 
It's called the prophet's candle because the prophet spoke of the hope of God's coming king. Let me pray and then we'll get into John. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this season of Advent and we pray that you'd focus our hearts on the Lord Jesus in all the, the busyness in the midst of parties and end of year celebrations and everything else that's going on. Please focus the eyes of our hearts on Jesus Christ, our light in this world and our hope for the world to come. We pray in his name. Amen. Uh, well, through Advent on Sundays, we're going to be looking at that passage from John's Gospel, uh, four weeks to work through 18 verses, so we're going pretty slow. Um, John's Gospel is different to the other three um, Gospels. It's interesting when you think about where each of the four Gospels starts in their narrative of Jesus. So Mark starts by telling us about John the Baptist coming, preparing the way, and then Jesus arrives, he's baptized, and then begins his public ministry. Uh, in the book of Luke, Luke starts earlier telling us about angels visiting uh, an old man called Zechariah and a young virgin called Mary announcing miraculous uh, pregnancies, miraculous births of John the Baptist and Jesus. So he starts just before the birth of Jesus. Matthew, where does he start? Well, he actually traces Jesus' genealogy right back to Abraham, shows how uh, Jesus is descended from Abraham over the generations. Where does John start? Well, he traces Jesus' origins even further back, uh, right back to the beginning, uh, before creation. It's an epic beginning to any book. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Uh, we're going to watch this uh, Bible Project video, which gives us an overview of these 18 verses, um, and then we'll move on. Jesus that altogether are called the gospel. And the gospel of John begins by introducing Jesus as the word of God. What does that mean for a person to be a word? Yeah, that's a great question. Let's check it out. So John's account has 21 chapters, and it begins with a carefully designed prologue that places Jesus' story in a cosmic context. It starts like this. In the beginning was the word. In the beginning, that's how the story of the whole Bible begins. In the beginning, God created the skies and the land. Right, John is claiming that to really understand who Jesus is, you need to start way, way back to the beginning. And what was God doing? speaking his creative word into the darkness. Words like, let there be lights, let the dry land appear, let plants grow. Picture a king who can get things done just by speaking the word. That's how God speaks in Genesis 1, 10 times. And each word turns the dark chaos into an ordered cosmos that is full of life. Creation hears the word and 
base. Now, think about it. A person's word is their word because it embodies their thoughts. But as it goes out from them, it becomes separate. It's this idea that John explores next. And the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Notice how John has designed this opening statement. So the outer lines are about the word's eternal nature. He's from the beginning. And then the center lines are a claim about the word's identity. The word is both with God and is God. There are two and also one. Now, after these opening lines are six more paragraphs that are arranged in two matching groups. The first three tell the story of Jesus with imagery drawn from the scroll of Genesis. Creation began with God bringing light into darkness. And now, with the coming of Jesus, God's beginning a new creation. Life and that life was the light of humanity, and the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness did not overcome it. In the next paragraph, we meet a new character, John the Baptizer. Yeah, he was preparing Israel for something new that God was going to do by bearing witness to Jesus when he arrived. John came as a witness so he could bear witness to the light so that everyone could believe through him. After this, the third paragraph explores the choice people face when God's light enters the world through Jesus. Some choose to stay in the dark, but others enter the light and are recreated, reborn as new kinds of humans. Unto his own we came, but his own did not receive him. But to those who did receive him, he gave authority to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. So these three paragraphs summarize the story of Jesus as God's word bringing light to the darkness. All imagery from Genesis. Right. And now watch. John will go back and retell the same story again, but this time with imagery taken from the scroll of Exodus. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw his glory, the glory of the one and only from the Father. So the eternal word of God entered into creation by becoming a mortal human named... Jesus. And he dwelt among us? Yeah, the Greek word for dwelt is skenen. It means literally to live in a tent. John is comparing Jesus to the sacred tabernacle that Moses built at Mount Sinai, the place where God's glorious presence can live and unite with his people. So Jesus is a human tabernacle? Yeah, he's the reality to which the tabernacle pointed, the place where God and humanity are united as one. Next, we get another mention of John the baptizer who's bearing witness to Jesus, saying, This is the one of whom I said, The one who comes after me actually precedes me, because he was long before me. After this, John tells about how he and his friends actually met Jesus, and how they made the choice to follow and trust him, and so were transformed by his light. From his fullness we all received grace upon grace. The Torah was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Messiah. John was an Israelite, part of the family, that received through Moses the generous gift of the Torah that shared God's word and wisdom. And now, through Jesus, John and his fellow Israelites have received the ultimate gift of God's truth and love, Jesus himself. And this time, God's word isn't written. It's a person. Exactly. Now, to wrap things up, John concludes the prologue with words that echo the opening lines. No one has ever seen God, the one and only God who is in the lap of the Father. That one has made known. So, on one hand, God is transcendent and above all, totally other. 
And if that were the end of the story, God would remain distant from us. But then John starts talking about this one and only God who's in the lap of the Father. And what does that mean? Well, remember in the prologue's opening, John used the image of God and God's word. Now he uses another image of a father whose son is sitting really close. A king and his word, a father and his son, they're both ways of saying the same thing. Right. John wants to make clear that the Jesus he knew was both distinct from God and also God. And as God's word and son and light and glory, Jesus came to make known. Yeah, to make known what? Yeah, exactly. In Greek, John doesn't say. He actually leaves the sentence open. He forgot to finish the last sentence? No, it's on purpose. It's John's invitation to keep reading the story so you can discover for yourself what Jesus wants to make known to you. Ultimately, John sees the whole story of the Bible as an invitation to know and be known by the Father and the Son, who together are the one God. Great, isn't it? Really helpful. I've not seen the kind of Genesis-Exodus connection before. Um, so, um, very briefly, as they said, Jesus has come as the Word uh, to make God known. And one of the things that he makes known, one of the kind of mind-blowing things that's revealed, even in these first few verses, is that the eternal God is not a, a singular power, but rather is exploding with love and relationship. Uh, the God revealed through Jesus is not just a singular power, but is a God of relationship, a God of love. In the beginning, we're told there was withness. There was withness. The word was with God, and the word was God. And, and this gives us a window into the very essence of God. This is ultimate reality. And that's the theme that I wanted to draw out from these verses and didn't have time. And so we're going to watch another video. Glenn Scrivener addresses this topic in the first of his 3-2-1 videos. So let's watch this together. This goes for about 13 minutes. You don't get a second chance to make a first impression. I wonder what impression the Bible has made on you. It's the world's all-time bestseller, written by 40 different authors over 1,500 years, and it has a famous opening line. Here's the first impression it's trying to make. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. What do you think? As first impressions go, I think this is epic. We're being told here is a sweeping drama that encompasses all time right back to the beginning. It also takes in all space, the heavens and the earth. And as for its central character, well, nothing less than God himself. The Bible's beginning could not be bigger. On the very first page, it's trying to grab you and pull you into its world. It's trying to tell you a story that claims to be the story. It's a story about God, the world, and you. Over the course of three videos, I want to walk you through that story. I invite you to step inside the Bible's world and to look around. Ask questions, raise objections, that's all fine. But let me tell you the story of God, the world, and you in 3, 2, 1. First, let's think about three. Three is a truth about God. God is three persons united in love. Let's begin in the beginning. We've heard the Bible's opening line. I wonder what you think was there in the beginning. 
Wind back the clock as far as you can before people, before planets, before protons. What was there? I think there are four main answers that you can give to that question. They're not hard and fast answers. There's overlap between them. But these answers will shape everything we believe about ourselves, our world, and our destiny. So let's start with the first answer. What was there in the beginning? Nothing. Some say in the beginning there was nothing, a big, dark, endless expanse of empty space. And of course, that's not nothing. That's a whole lot of black something, but let's not get picky. Uh, I don't know about you, but this is my first thought. Before the universe, but the universe is everything. What could possibly come before it? That's probably my first thought because that's the story I've grown up with in the West. In this story, our origins lie in some absolute zero point. Bring it all back to basics, and what do you get? Nothing. Therefore, what is life? It's trying to work a something out of a nothing. Make your own reason for being. Construct your own image. Be a self-creator. There's just one problem. In the end, we're left with what we started with. Nothing. The artist Damien Hirst said recently that everything you do in life is pointless if you just take a step back and look at it. That sounds horribly bleak, but if there was nothing in the beginning, he's absolutely right. So let's try another tack. What was there in the beginning? Chaos. Many of the world's creation myths tell of wars in heaven, battling gods jostle for preeminence and the loser gods are cast out. Perhaps creation is the place of exile for the naughty deities or the body of a dead god. Or maybe the universe is just the rubble of some cosmic storm. There are scientific versions of this story too. Essentially, it's the belief that our world is fundamentally about conflict, killing, and chaos. Life, therefore, is about fashioning something from the cosmic debris. The strong will eat the weak and the powerful will rule, but only for a little while. Ultimately, it's anarchy that reigns. At bottom, it's chaos. Or what about this for a response? What was there in the beginning? Power. Again, there's a religious and a non-religious version of this one. The non-religious version says, in the beginning there were colossal forces. Reality is ruled by iron laws of physics that just grind along, and the universe dances to this relentless beat. The religious version is remarkably similar, but in the religious version we put a name tag on this primeval power. We call it God. If you've grown up in the West, you'll probably be familiar with the power god. He's basically the, the god that Westerners either do or don't believe in. Whenever I ask people what was there in the beginning, religious people will answer God. But that doesn't tell us very much. The real question is, which god? There are millions to choose from. Yet all too often, people imagine a god there in the beginning who is a single, solitary power all by himself. Just think about that. Can you imagine this lonely God existing from all eternity? He has no one and nothing beside him, just his own thoughts for company. This God knows nothing of relationship, nothing of back and forth or give and take. This God is not essentially loving. Maybe once he creates, this God might choose to love us, but he might not as well because it's power that rules this universe. Therefore, how must creatures relate to him? We must simply obey his absolute will. We cannot trust the love of this God because he might take it away. Fundamentally, we can only fear his power. 
if this God was in the beginning, then we'd be saved from nothingness, we'd be saved from chaos, but we'd be delivered into slavery. Is this what the Bible means when it starts, in the beginning, God? Wonderfully, no. That's not the God of the Bible at all. Here is the Bible's answer to our question. What was there in the beginning? Love. Here's an answer that changes everything. If it's true, it's the greatest of all truths. The Bible insists that God is three persons united in love. Therefore, we've come from love. We're shaped by love. Our lives, our world, our future, it's ruled by love. Could that be true? The Bible says, think back to the beginning. There you'll see that ultimately, reality is not a lonely individual, but a lively relationship. Let me explain. The phrase, in the beginning, appears in two places in the Bible. In the very first book of the Bible, Genesis, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It goes on to describe God's creation in plural terms. The Spirit of God moves over the waters. The Word of God brings everything into being. And when this God makes humanity, it's the result of a committee decision. Let us make humanity in our image. Interesting. The other place that in the beginning appears is in the New Testament. Jesus' closest friend John wrote a biography of Jesus called John's Gospel. He begins it by saying, In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Here John is refreshing our memory of Genesis. In the beginning there was not a lonely God. In the beginning there was one person called God, later called the Father. And then there was a, a second person called the Word. And he can also take the name God, or the Son of God, or Jesus Christ. Finally, John introduces us to a third person, uh, the Holy Spirit, or the Comforter. He too is God. He too is there in the beginning. According to the Bible, this is what was there in the beginning, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Ultimate reality is this, three persons united in love. Christians call this the Trinity, which is just a way of squashing two words together, tri and unity the tri-unity, the trinity. It's the unity of these three. That's who God is and who he has always been. That's why the Bible can say, God is love. Forever the Father has loved his Son in the joy of the Holy Spirit. That's why we feel like love is the greatest thing, because the greatest thing, God, is love. The best things in life really are relationships, deep personal connection, meetings of minds, meetings of hearts. That's real life because the Bible says that's eternal life. That's God's life. This is where we've come from, a family of love. This is where we belong. We exist to find our place in the three. And perhaps you say, that's a nice idea, Glenn. God is love. Love is ultimate. Fantastic. I don't see it. I don't feel it. To me, it looks like nothingness and chaos and power rule the world. If love really rules, where is it? That's a really serious issue. We need to deal with that. If God really is this family of love, if love really is ultimate, how exactly does that connect with the mess of this world? Because this world is brimful of suffering and death and disaster and evil. And we're supposed to believe that love is ultimate? 
How does that love connect with our mess? Well, there's more to be said on this when we explain two, but let me give you the beginning of an answer. God connects His love to our mess by sending His Son into the world. 2,000 years ago, the Son of God became our brother. A member of the Trinity became a member of the human race. On that first Christmas, the love of God was earthed into our situation. Why? Well, He joins us in our mess so we can join Him in His family. Let me tell you a story. When Jesus was 30 years old, there was a group of Jews getting washed in the Jordan River. It was a religious ritual called baptism where people confessed to God and to everyone else, I'm a mess. It's not just the world. I too am unclean on the inside and they wanted to be washed. Have you ever wanted a shower on the inside? These people felt their mess and so they confess their uncleanness and they go through a ritual washing. They are baptized in the Jordan River. You can read about it in the third biography of Jesus in the New Testament. Luke's Gospel, chapter 3. And who should turn up but Jesus, the Son of God? But instead of judging them for being so messy, what does the Son of God do? He gets baptized. He joins the queue of messy people, shoulder to shoulder, with all the other moral failures, and he gets baptized. It's a public relations disaster. How does it look? The perfect Son of God is taking a bath, along with all the moral failures, all the messy people. What's he doing? He's joining us in our mess, so we can join him in his family. Luke chapter 3, verse 21 says, When all the people were being baptized... Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my Son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Right here, in the midst of the mess, the love of God connects. Jesus joins us in our mess and the Father publicly repeats his deep love for the Son. The Holy Spirit publicly comes on Jesus to refill him. Because the Father and the Spirit want everyone to know Jesus is still in the family. Just because He's joined us in our failures doesn't mean He's left the Trinity. No, He has joined us in our mess so we can join His family. We'll find out how when we explain two and one. But for now, this is the good news of the three. God is three persons united in love. Which means, in the beginning, there was love. If there was nothing in the beginning, then life would just be absurd. If there was chaos in the beginning, life would just be struggle. If there was power in the beginning, then life would just be slavery. But no, in the beginning, there was love, because God is three persons united in love. And the good news is you're invited. You can find that online. Search for 321 Glenn Scrivener. Uh, there are two more videos, two and one. Um, but that one, I think, really um, picks up that theme from the beginning of John. Uh, brilliant, brilliant. Um, we've got a minute. Uh, we haven't got much time. We need to get on. But um, a, a minute to just reflect. I want you to um, take time on your own or talk to your neighbor. Um, what spoke to you? Uh, how are you going to respond? What would that look like at uh, this Advent? Uh, what spoke to you? 
How do you need to respond? What will that look like uh, during Advent? Take a minute and then I'll lead us in prayer. Do keep talking um, afterwards. It'd be great to re- reflect more on that. Um, I think for me, that, that phrase Glenn used, we exist to find our place in the three. If, if this is ultimate reality, if this is where the world has come from, this is where we've come from, this, this um, God of relationship, uh, and we're invited to be part of it, then um, that's what life is about. We kind of know that instinctively, don't we? As he said, this, um, life is all about loving relationships, about meetings of hearts and minds. And uh, ultimately, the ultimate relationship where we find true life is in, in uh, unity with God, the Father, Son, and Spirit. So uh, this Advent, I want to press into that, uh, remember that, and make time to, uh, to seek the Lord. Uh, Corinne in Hospital has been reading a book called The Pursuit of God, and um, Toza says there, the world is perishing for lack of knowledge of God and the the church is famished uh, for want of his presence. This is what we need. Let me lead us in prayer. We thank you, uh, Lord God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you are a God of loving relationship, that uh, in the beginning is not a singular power, but a God exploding uh, with love and relationship. This is where we've come from. This is Uh, what shapes the world and this is our destiny we exist to find our place in the three and we thank you so much uh, as we look forward to Christmas for that truth that the son uh, came to earth and joined us us in our mess that we might join him in his family this advent please help us to make time uh, maybe to, to fast, to pray to press in to that relationship we were created for we want to want you. We long to long for you. We thirst to thirst more deeply uh, for you. Help us and lead us as we continue to reflect and think through how we put this into practice. In Jesus' name, amen.